Hi, I'm Rob Walling, and this is the MicroConf On Air podcast. Welcome to week two of our MicroConf Talk Tracks. This is where we pull the best MicroConf Talks of all time. We take their audio track, we put it in this podcast feed with a little introduction and context from me. So far, the response to doing this has been great. We've been receiving excellent feedback about it, and so we will continue to do it as long as you continue to listen, get value, and let us know. Let us know on Twitter at microconf or a five-star review in, in the podcatcher of your choice always helps as well. This week's talk is widely regarded as the best microconf talk of all time, and I've always introduced it as what I consider to be the best talk about bootstrapping software products that has ever been given. And I'd say that without exaggeration. I don't say that about other talks. In general, I have heard people comment that this is the talk. This is a talk that really shaped their thinking around bootstrapping and and just gave them a lot of clarity. So it's from MicroConf 2013, and it's by Jason Cohen, the founder of WP Engine, and it's called Designing the Ideal Bootstrapped Business. And his abstract for this, this talk is, starting a business is hard enough. The last thing you need to do is set up a foundation that works against you. A better approach is to take stock of your natural advantages, disadvantages, goals, and needs, and back into what that has to mean about your business model, pricing, market, product, approach, advertising, etc. So he starts with the assumption that you're bootstrapping, and he just designs the ideal bootstrap business from there, just like the title says. And this talk has been viewed tens of thousands of times. You know, we just moved to YouTube from Vimeo in the last five or six months, and it already is approaching 20,000 views. And it had tens of thousands, if not more than 100,000 views back on Vimeo. I'd have to look at the analytics to be sure, but it's been viewed a lot. There's a lot of value. I still listen back to this talk at least, I'll say every year or two, just to listen through to refresh my memory of, you know, the knowledge that Jason drops in this talk. And with that, let's dive in. So what I would like to do to kick this off is talk about what I think a so-called perfect um, bootstrap startup is, and what are those attributes? What, what does it mean in terms of making money, in terms of going to market, in terms of acquiring customers, uh, and why? Because I think uh, most companies don't work. Just like Heaton said in the, uh, in the video there, most companies, for one, don't build something people want. But I think it's even worse than that. I think they also maybe are building something people want, but not in a structure that lends itself to bootstrapping. That is not in a structure that lends itself for low money, uh, low time, and, and all that kind of stuff either. And I feel like a lot of companies fail just because it's not a good fit for the resources and constraints and advantages that you have um, having a small company. And as Rob alluded to, I've built four companies uh, by bootstrapping, and all of them made more than a million dollars, all of them were a year, all of them were profitable, two of them were sold. Even my current one, WP Engine, um, was the same, and then I went and, and joined the other side, and I raised some money, and um, we're trying to swing for the fences now, which is a whole new challenge. But I did bootstrap it to this point before raising money, so it still counts as far as this is concerned. Um, so this is how I think about <clears throat> um, what it means to do this. And by the way, uh, we were talking to Heaton last night, and Heaton says, I don't like bootstrapped. I don't even know what that means anymore. It sucks. And I don't like, uh, like, like someone said in the, in the video, um, uh, I, don't, I don't like lifestyle business because there's this pejorative implied there, um, and I agree with that. And so Heaton suggested, see, now I'm stealing Heaton's thunder, and he's going to go talk tomorrow and not have anything to say. But Oh, good. He's, he's, he seems happy, though. Um, <laughs> but Heaton said, let's call it self-funded. I said, yes, that's good, self-funded. 
And maybe that means a little friends and family. Maybe that means a little, de a little debt, but not the kind that you're giving up any significant amount of your company for. Self-funded. So let's call it that, I think, self-funded. Anyway, so this is what I think of as a self-funded company. I think the right uh, mind frame is, the uh, frame of mind is to say that it is a cash machine, meaning a predictable way in which you're going to make profit every month. And this is what I mean. How many people in here currently have a business where if you did nothing next month, you stayed in Vegas and went crazy, your business would make $10,000 in revenue next month for sure, like without any doubt at all how many? Oh, not bad. But still not more than 20%, I'd say. And that's, that's kind of the point. I mean, look at this audience of folks who can afford a fairly expensive ticket and all this to come out here. And still, it's almost impossible to hit what I just said, which is barely really enough to just quit your job which is maybe the first kind of a, a goal you might have in a self-funded uh, startup, just to be able to focus on it full time is probably your biggest goal. And especially if you have a family or something like that where um, it's, it's, especially, you know, it's especially interesting to you to, uh, to um, um, make this company work. So this is, this is what I want to talk about building for the whole rest of the time, something that predictably and repeatedly always gives you $10,000 a month per founder in revenue and hopefully more like 20, 30, 40, that sort of thing, and how I uh, see building that. And to be fair, um, this is exactly the constraints I put on myself with WP Engine, and even the company that I didn't do before that because I couldn't find a way to make these constraints fit and decided, therefore, it's not a good way to self-fund something. So first I want to talk about re revenue models, and this might be pretty obvious, but um, my third company, SmartBear, was uh, what you might call one-off software. You bought it, you downloaded it, and you don't really come back. Maybe there's upgrades, maybe for enterprise plans you get 20% per year if you really haggle them and they really care about the features you added. But more or less, every time the month turns over, you have to start from scratch for revenue. This is, of course, the opposite of a cash machine as far as I'm concerned. And I can tell you, at SmartBear, even after having millions in revenue, and therefore probably should have felt pretty comfortable each month that we'd be okay. I literally would wake up in the middle of the night, wake up in the middle of the night panicked, wondering how am I gonna cover payroll in the, in the da, 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 this month? And I felt that way when it was just me for two years, and I felt that way seven years later when it was a team of 12 and all that, I still felt the same way. It never got better, ever, ever. And it's a horrible way to live, I have to tell you. It's, it's horrible, so I don't like that. Um, so, of course, recurring revenue, we don't, have to, we don't have to beat you over the head about that. No kidding. That's what it means to, get to know I'm going to have money next month is that it's recurring. But <clears throat> I think the details around this are not obvious, so I want to get into what specifically I mean. Because you probably have heard of this thing um, that um, Kevin Kelly first thought of um, called a thousand fans. And he, he said, you know, all these artists, uh, especially, um, especially musicians, who want to get away from the labels, they, um, they could get away with labels if they could just get a thousand rabid fans to, to buy like one or two hundred dollars a year worth of merch and going to concerts and stuff like that. And that's all they'd need. And they wouldn't need labels or anything because what they really want, I mean, sure they want um, lots of money, that'd be great. But considering right now they are, uh, have to have a full-time job and barely can do the band versus okay, I don't have $10 million in the bank, but I'm doing what I love, which is just playing music and traveling the country. That's an amazing shift. And all you need is 1,000 rabid fans. This is, a, this is a really romantic, fantastic concept. And so Seth Godin got a hold of it, and he's like, that is. And so he posted it, and then it got really popular, and that's where everyone heard about it, more or less. The problem is that a couple of weeks later, Kevin Kelly, 
redacted the whole idea. He said, you know, I was inundated with information from actual artists, and they said, this is completely not true. And first of all, um, you can't even get people to give you $100, $200 a year. It's hard. You can't get 1,000 rabid fans. You can get like 30 or 50 of your, you know, your friends and family and stuff. But actually, 1,000 fans, super hard to get. 1,000 people at any price point is really hard. How many people in here have over 1,000 customers? Ooh, not bad. How many of them give you $10 a month or more? $100 a month or more? Right. It's really hard to get 10,000 of anything and really hard to get uh, you know, a, you know, a decent amount of money. And the other thing was, even if they did have the, the you know, one or $200 a year times 1,000, so two, you know, say, call it $200,000, not enough to cover all the expenses for traveling around and doing, paying a couple of band members and stuff. It actually isn't enough. So unfortunately, Seth, uh, it, was, it was not in his interest to redact his own thing, so he didn't. Seth didn't say a thing. And so it was stuck in everyone's mind that 1,000 rabid fans is a good idea, and no one read the thing that said, actually, it's not. So I'm going to propose a different thing instead, that let's do 150 fans, or really 150 customers, right? And you can do 150 for sure, because first of all, you can get 50 just by scratching and clawing and going to these kind of things and talking to people. And um, you know, I, I did things uh, for WP Engine, for example, where I literally called, uh, or, or sorry, emailed people. I'll, I'll give you the exact technique. I would go to LinkedIn and I'd find people who are consultants in WordPress, because we're WordPress hosting. And I would send them the following email. I'd say, hey, I'm a founder of this new WordPress hosting company. It's supposed to be designed for folks like you. So I'd love to talk to you about your pain and your needs and you know, customer development stuff, right? And then I'd say, now I know your time is valuable. You're a consultant. And so I absolutely do not want you to feel like I'm just trying to grab time from you. I am very happy to pay whatever you think is fair for an hour of your time, even if that's more than your normal hourly rate, because I appreciate this is a weird one-off thing. So I, I literally don't care, but I'm very interested. And here's what happened. I sent 40 of those. 100% of them agreed to talk to me on the phone. And I actually talked to you know, 38. The rest didn't schedule or whatever. <clears throat> but there was 100% positive response rate, and 38 of the 40 talked to me. And zero of them asked for any money. In other words, I was just respectful of them. They were happy to help. So that's obviously only one technique, but it's a pretty easy one to use for pretty much anything. So this is what I mean. You can scratch and get there. With the, with the idea for a company I had before um, WP Engine, I couldn't find enough people to give me money, and so I gave up. But with WP Engine, I was able to find 30, 40 people who agreed to give me $50 a month if I built this thing, before I had a company name, before I had a PowerPoint presentation, before I had any employees, before I had a server, before I had anything, I already had 30 people doing that. And at Capital Factory, which is an incubator in Austin that I helped start, I tell companies every single year to do this. And usually about half of them try it. And it, you'd be surprised how many times you can get 20 or 30 people to give you a check right there for something that does not exist if the idea is, in fact, solving a pain that they really have, which, of course, is the measure anyway. So you can get 50 people. And you can, you can do you know, guest posting on certain blogs and other social media stuff. I actually don't think you can get a lot uh, around that. I'll talk about that later. But you can certainly scratch and claw a little bit out of that. And then finally, you're going to have some kind of marketing, even if that's as, as mundane as AdWords and, uh, or special ads on, a partic on, on you know, particular uh, sites that are relevant to your thing or something like that. You can scrape that together. Again, if you can't scrape that together over a period of months, of course. But if you can't do that, then I would argue that it's going to be hard to make this a company ever. And so if it could be a company ever, 75, not, not hard to do. But the other trick is, OK, great. 
I can get 150, but the goal, remember, is I want a $10,000 a month in revenue. And so this makes a very obvious formula that I need to charge what, is pro what may feel like a lot of money, $70 a month, say, on average. And again, a lot of people who are self-funded um, realize that their product doesn't have a lot of features and it's kind of shitty and the support's slow because it's just you and like actually everything about it is kind of shitty and so I'm not worth uh, charging a lot of money. And so you know you, you feel like, oh, I'm going to charge $19 a month, $9 a month, and often that's coupled with, but I'll get thousands of customers, which is, of course, again, very hard. So my argument to you is that that's, that is not a good idea. That's a difficult way to go. And the easy way is to decide how it is valid to charge a lot of money. And the good news is this is something that Erica Douglas is going to talk about for her entire talk. And in fact, several other people I believe are going to touch on this. And I'll even throw out a few things. So you're going to get a ton of ways to do this. So you have no excuse not to. So um, one example of doing this is exactly the price uh, points that we did at WP Engine when we got started, which are those. And just having different tiers with crap in them, you know, of course it'll vary by product, but more features or more, uh, more volume of stuff segmented by customer type, that sort of thing, the usual tiering kind of thing. Um, those were our tiers, and our average revenue per customer was more than $100 a month with those particular tiers. So this is what I mean, right? Um, another example is charge a, a, a lot for the product, 99 even 199 but then have coupons and specials all of the time. One thing we tried uh, doing once um, is we, it, we had that $49 one. What we did is we wrote 79 and then crossed it out and said 49 and sales went up. Right, it's the same thing. It just kind of makes it feel, so that's what I mean, right? Or make it 99 a month and that's fine, except you go to, you go to bloggers and such and you give them a coupon for their readers which will give them 30% off for a year, which again just gets you back to the 66 average that you need, but everybody feels like they're getting a lot more value, right? So there's all kinds of, you know, the, the, the internet's full of tricks like this, I suppose, um, and, and you'll, again, you'll hear a lot more. But the point is you've got to charge more money. There's lots of ways to do that, so there's no excuse. And then, of course, the nice thing is if you do get to 150, surely that's not the, the ceiling, even in a tiny niche. And if 150 begets uh, 10 grand, then you can see, oh, well, yes, that's a, good, that's a good point to go for, only because then it's very clear that you could get to 15 or 20, probably. Um, who knows about a million? Who knows if you even want to do that? But certainly, you, know, you can get a nice, um, stable company that way. And so, again, I don't want to beat up the, the, the price thing uh, too much, because you'll get more of that. But what I do want to do is, is put one word in your mind about this, and that's boutique. Because if you think about, outside of the tech world, what does this mean? What's a similar thing? A shop that's only got one or two people in it, and it's super expensive, and it's barely ever open, because it's just them. Sounds like a microbusiness of any kind, doesn't it? <laughs> Can't answer the email while you're at work, so you're not open, kind of, right? And, uh, but you get incredible attention, and the work is amazing, and it's unique, and it's special, and you feel good helping out people who are really making a go of it. And so you don't mind that it's three times as expensive as it should be for a dress or whatever the hell it is, right? Boutique. So you can be a boutique consultant like Patrick McKenzie. You can be a boutique um, anything, right? So this thing, even a lawyer, right? The independent boutique lawyer um, is a thing. And so I, I think this is a nice positive way to say, yeah, this is why it is okay to spend money. And this, this now dovetails with the, with the talk I did last year about saying, you know, if you say I am just one person who's really making a go of it, that's the kind of thing that actually lets you charge more money because people go, that's awesome because startups are cool right now, aren't they? And so people want to give you more money. Boutique. Okay. So staying with the concept of revenue but moving around a little bit away from the model, 
I want to talk about cash flow, obviously very important for any company, but in particular a self-funded one, because you don't have cash, that's the deal. And you know cash is king, we're not going to talk about that. But since cash is king, you have to use the annual prepay trick. How many people have, are using annual prepays right now? Very few, that's interesting. Okay, have to do it, you have to. It's required by law, it turns out. Um, because, let's suppose you figure out a way that you could spend $300 and acquire a customer on average that pays 50 bucks a month. This is actually pretty easy. There's a lot of clicks on Google Ads. Or, that, you know, that's like one blog post that contently writes that you post somewhere and you only need one sale from it. You know, this is, this is actually a pretty easy bar to, to reach, $300 for $50 a month. But if, if that's true, you, if you can spend that to do that, then if you spent 60 grand right now, if, if this was a perfect little model, if you could, you'd get to your 10 grand a month uh, run rate right now, which is kind of an interesting thought if you, th if you think of it in that way. And so what happens with annual prepay is you can actually do that. Because if you think about it, if you put up on the site and say, all right, if you sign up now for annual, then uh, I'll give you two months free. So okay, you collect less money over the, over the you know, imaginary course of a year. That's true. You, you, you collect 16% less money. Okay, two months. But the deal is that you pay the 60K for the, for the, the signups and you get 100K in cash now. Of course, if you waited over a course of a whole year, you would eventually get 120K, which is more. But that means that right now you get 40K in the bank. Right now. You get, you're already to your goal and you have 40K in the bank to go deploy on other stuff like more advertising or developing something or hiring a designer finally so it doesn't look like ass or whatever it is that you're gonna do, right? Like it's, so having 40K today now, no cash flow problems is always worth what you would have had, you would have had 60K over the next 12 months, always every single time. That's actually true of almost any SaaS business, period. Um, but in particular, it's true of, of self-funded businesses. So you have to do this. Now, now, this is imaginary. You can't make everyone do this, right? And so I'll, I'll give you some hard figures. This is exactly the numbers that we get at WP Engine, so you can see what I mean. One quarter of our signups that come through the website elect the annual prepay by revenue. So that means 75% of the time, it's true I only collect one month of revenue um, from the customer that first month. And a quarter of the time, though, I get 10 times one month, right? Not 12, because it's there's a discount. And so math is pretty simple. I get over three times the cash flow every month than I would have had. And in particular, the way that our, uh, with the cost of our customer acquisition, we actually collect more money in cash every month than it costs us to acquire those customers, just like the previous math. That is exactly what happens. And so we literally operate with an infinite marketing budget. The marketing budget at, at, at WP Engine is not limited by money because we'll make it back. In fact, we, it's negative one month because I make the money in, in credit cards today, gets deposited in the bank, right? And then the credit card for stuff like AdWords doesn't hit till next month, does it? I actually get negative one month of, 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 of cash flow on that. And so, can, and so can you, I'm saying. Now look, maybe the ratios won't be the same, but any number of people that elect annual is a lot, lot, lot better and lets you deploy that money right away. So by the way, we can't do infinite marketing though because we're constrained by other things like human beings. We actually stop our marketing at some point um, because our tech support organization was so overwhelmed with tickets that we were giving people bad service, which I suppose is a good problem to have, but it's a problem anyway. Um, anyway, so it's very realistic um, that this is the case and I absolutely think you have to do it. And so let me give you a couple of extra hip tips and hacks of how to get people to do annual more as we do. <clears throat> uh, 
A really fun one is you make a coupon, again, to give to other sources like affiliates and bloggers and stuff like that, people who might send you traffic. And you give them a, a, a coupon that says, your readers can get three months free if they sign up for an annual prepay. And of course, the coupon has to only work in that case. And of course, you're giving them two months free anyway. So three months is not that much more, but it's a big incentive for people to come up and do it. And if it only works on annual, it's a big cash bump. Um, so that's one, let's see. Um, another one, um, I told this uh, to a company at Capital Factory. Um, so they were uh, charging, I believe, uh, $29 a month. And I said, um, well, and they were also, and they had something else like, uh, they didn't have annual prepay at all. And I said, well, oh, no, no, I, I take it back. They were charging $99 a year. And I said, oh, okay, well, um, why don't you charge $49 a month and then make the annual discount like half off. Like it's, it's six months free, just make it ridiculous. So they did, and signups didn't change at all. Like the number of signups, I mean, didn't change at all. In other words, everyone was perfectly happy to see a higher price monthly and then receive a much, much bigger price annually. And all of a sudden, um, that happened. So if you're worried about that annual and that number's too big, then just raise the monthly rate a little bit and discount the annual a lot so that it feels like a terrific deal. If people pick the monthly, fine. You just raise it a lot, so great. And if they pick the annual, they feel like it's a good deal, so it encourages them to do exactly that. Right? Another thing I did at a Capital Factory, and this is what I was just confused with, um, is that a company was charging, I think it was $50 a year, and I said, just make it per month and see what happens. And they did, and signups didn't change at all. <laughs> Again, this is just like raising your price, do it. And then I said, um, okay, well now do an annual, and again, like you can do what kind of discounting you want. So um, you gotta do stuff like that. Um, I'll give you a couple more hacks. ARPU stands for Average Revenue Per User. That comes from Telco. That's just another way of saying uh, revenue per customer. Just a couple of extra hacks on this because, again, this amount of money that you're charging per customer is the most important metric, I think, in, in your company. It's gonna be more important than things like cancellation rate even and other things like that when you're small. This is the most important thing that will move the needle on stuff. Um, and again, you'll hear a lot more in this whole conference, so that's good. So one thing is just raise prices. Yet another story of here is there was another Capital Factory company, because see, we, there's 100 companies in Capital Factory, understand, so that's why I have a lot of stories in there. But it's good. It's a corpus of, of lots of things, lots of people bootstrapping. And, um, and uh, they were charging $19 a month, and I said, we'll double it and see what happens. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, just, well, do it for a week, and if no one signs up, it's cool. It's just, you're only getting one or two signups a day anyways, like it won't really matter. So they doubled it to 49 or whatever it was, and signups didn't change at all. They're like, this is great, I just doubled revenue. I said, yeah, what are you gonna do now? They said, oh, I'm gonna buy a lot of AdWords and do all this stuff, and it's like, no, you're gonna double it again. <laughs> <laughs> or at least 50% or something until something else, until something bad happens, <laughs> right? Anyway, just raise the damn prices, that's one of them. Um, there's other things, um, this, is, this is one that Erica taught me actually, see, so maybe I'm stealing her stuff, but you have the tiers, highlight the middle, you've seen this on lots of websites, right? You highlight the middle one, and people tend to get it instead of the lower one. Um, have really big one on the end for people that really want, that just decide they always want to spend the most money. People will do that, it's nice. Um, another one from Erica is call the most expensive one the business plan, and then people with businesses will sign up for that automatically. It works, and if you go to our website, we'll see exactly that. Thanks, Erica. And so there's lots of tricks, and again, you'll see a lot more of this, this um, during this conference. Another hack, a lot of people have free trials, 15-day free trial, 30-day free trial, and that makes sense. Customers want to test stuff out first. No, no one trusts anyone, that's fine. Um, 
But I hate free trials, actually, for, uh, especially for bootstrap companies, because you never get that money back. Most people that sign up with a credit card will stay. If that's not true, by the way, something is incredibly poisonous, fix that part and don't worry about the rest of this, right? Um, but if that's true, then that means most of the time when they give you their credit card, you're giving them 15 or 30 days for nothing and you're never going to charge them for it. So you just lost the money and that sucks. So I don't like trials. But you have to give them something. So we switched to a 60-day money-back guarantee instead of a 15-day free trial. And in both cases, we took the credit card originally, and in one we say, but we won't charge you until the trial's over, and the other one we just charged, the, charged them anyway and said, we'll give you a refund and much more time. And sales went up. And people would email us and say, you know, that 15 days didn't seem like enough time. Now that I have 60 days, I decided to sign up. Like, but I'm charging you more. Like, don't you understand? Like, I'm to get, yeah, they don't. It's more time. And so you get more money, and actually, um, it's, it's uh, pretty interesting. And let me give you some data to back this up. I'm not, I have no, no time access and no X and Y axis. Isn't that nice? That's because I'm not going to give you too much information about how WP Engine works. But this is our number of customers graph. And there's a pretty obvious uh, change point right there. And that was about January of last year. We added a 60-day money-back guarantee instead of a trial. We changed our tiers around a little bit, like you saw. A lot of that, again, is due to Erica. We added that business tier. When you rename the tiers, including business, look, right? And this is not even revenue. This is number of signups, right? Re revenue is even better, right? But number of signups. In other words, no, it's not like, well, we charge more, but fewer people signed up and any of that math. No, all of it went up. Now, again, won't always be like this, but the point is people are so scared of changing prices or it's like, no, just do it and look at it. and like that. And the final thing uh, I'll say on revenue is I don't like um, any kind of self-funded startups in which the, the revenue model is anything like what I call picking up pennies, which is stuff like Kickstarter, where I'm going to have all this activity and money's going to move around and I'll just, I'll just scrape off the top. Or I'll have a donation site and people will send money and I'll get 1%. And the reason I don't like it is actually uh, nicely demonstrated by Kickstarter. They did over $100 million of, of funding of stuff last year, which is really cool, except they only made $6 million. And that wasn't even enough to cover their costs, so they lost money. And so they have to raise more money. And Kickstarter is one of the most successful examples of a you know, kind of quick-growing, um, you know, picking-up-penny sort of a company. And even they, they can't make money really at it. I, just, I don't like that. Maybe at scale and at other things, maybe for raising money, maybe all that, but not, not this kind. So I don't like anything like that. I like it when you go get customers and charge them lots of money. That's what I want. So, so now I want to set revenue aside and talk about markets, what kinds of uh, go, what, what kinds of markets, to me, are conducive to a cash machine company. And again, everything, you know, there's exceptions to all rules and stuff like that. But I feel like there are some markets which are intrinsically difficult to build a cash machine in, and markets where it's intrinsically easier. And so I just want to go through those. And the first thing is this question of, like, should it be B2C or B2B, meaning do I sell to other businesses or do I sell to consumers? And I want to make the very strong argument that you should absolutely never not, not, not sell to consumers. People don't spend money on stuff. I mean, Gmail is like one of the best, perhaps the best uh, you know, online mail thing that has ever existed, ever, ever. And they started charging people $5 a month. They're like, what are you, crazy? I got $5 a month for the most amazing email that exists. Um, app Store is a good example. Again, I remember reading a review of an app that I was going to buy. It's a $1.99 app. And the review said, this is terrible. It didn't have this feature or whatever. Maybe if it was $0.99, cents, it would have been worth it. But not at $1.99. It's like... 
that's the consumer market. That's the deal. This is not conducive to $70 a month, right? That's what people pay for their Time Warner bill. And even then they complain about it. Like, consume, it's too hard to do this in consumer. Backupify, another good example. They make, they, they make back, they back up stuff. That's a good, that's a good self-funded kind of company, right? Backing up stuff? I think so. Except they sold to consumers and they only charge $40 a year to back up everything. Couldn't be done. Damn it. So they switched to doing business. Um, and if you think about all the companies that, that you, that you might um, you know, follow or idolize in this, um, in this sort of self-funded thing, like 37 Signals and Fog Creek and Atlassian and, like, and, and you know, all, the, all the people who spoke last year and all that kind of stuff, all of my companies, they're all B2B. There's not a B2C one in there. In fact, on the speaker list, like right off the bat, every single person in here, almost, is selling B2B. And the thing about, but not Patrick, right, because he's got the bingo card creator. That sells to consumers, except talk to Patrick about it and see what he thinks about that. <laughs> right. So he says, don't do that, is what he says. <laughs> don't do that. So now he's selling scheduling software to people that have businesses. So he's now in the B2B camp, too. And then you have Rob. And it's true that Rob used to sell towels and online and stuff like that to consumers. Okay, fair enough. Except he ditched all that, and now he's selling invoicing software. That's B2B. And then hit, then hit tail, which is B2B. And now a new thing, which is B2B. So it's B2B. It's B2B. That's the deal. All right. I, that's, that's all I got. All right. <laughs> Enough. So let me give you some markets I like and, and, and don't like. So first of all, I don't like any market in which the pain that the customer experiences is temporary, where we have to catch them at a certain point in their life. Um, we had a company go through Capital Factory that sold um, this really neat thing where you took your wedding photos and it made videos out of it and it was inexpensive. It was really cool. Every single customer that used it, every one, said it was awesome, they would do it again, and made a testimonial. Every one. And who cares? Because you only get married, what, twice, three times? So <laughs> it's not, that's not enough of recurring revenue, right? And the problem is you have to catch them right, like, while they're planning their wedding. Well, you and everyone else on earth trying to sell things to brides. And you know they spend a lot of money, you know, a lot of big companies spending a lot of money trying to get in front of brides, right? It's hard to go get in that point of time and go sell the thing and it's not recurring. I don't like that. Um, events is another one. You constantly see, I constantly see startups trying to sell stuff to people who do events. And they, it's hard to do that. It's only once a year at most. It's difficult. Um, another, another kind of different example of the same thing at my company, SmartBear, after we sold it, we started acquiring other companies. And, um, and one of them was a code profiler, which is a tool that tells you um, how, how your, if your software is running slowly, why. That's useful, of course. And so what would happen is, and there was a free trial, so what would happen is their software is running slowly, they search for a profiler, they get it, they go fix the problem, hooray, what a great tool. Except I'm still in my free trial period and now I don't have the pain anymore. So they didn't buy. And it's very difficult to get them to get recurring or something because the thing isn't recurring. So temporary pain. So if, if, if it's not a continuous pain, I don't like it. So sort of conversely, I like things, not necessarily pain, or, but the value is itself somehow naturally recurring so that it makes sense that you would continue charging in a recurring manner. So one example is if the cost of the service itself is recurring, which is like WP Engine, our, a hosting company, because obviously we have servers and bandwidth and stuff like that, and that sits there and fans have to spin and amps have to move around and stuff like that. And so like, clearly there are costs, and so clearly we charge you every month. There's no doubt about it, and the only question is how much. There's no, there's no like, it should be free. Like, it's not even, it doesn't even come up because the costs themselves um, are ongoing. Um, 
Another example are anything tied to financial cycles. Invoicing, reconciliation, taxes, reporting, metrics, compliance, HR, admin. There's like a ton of stuff that's sort of attached to financial cycles, monthly, quarterly, annual stuff. Um, all of those, again, you have to do it. And so anything that goes into that uh, role is good. Uh, invoicing software is, is you know, uh, Rob's invoicing software is a good example. Another fun data point on this, there was a study of thousands of uh, mobile apps that, that somebody did, and they asked them how much money they were making. Here's, a, here's one, I know most people here are doing web apps, but still, here's a funny data point. They asked thousands of mobile app developers, how much money do you make on your app? And 30% of them said zero dollars, and another 30% said, I don't know. So from that same study, so that's interesting, maybe a ward away from, from the mobile app thing for recurring revenue, maybe, but in particular, apps that were IT focused averaged uh, uh, $1,500 a month in revenue. And apps that were finance based averaged $6,000 a month. So again, finance cycles, good thing. Another one is, um, when the nature of the pain or the challenge or the value itself changes over time by its nature. So a lot of examples here are like in digital marketing. Like SEO changes, Google changes its mind and other competitors come up and you do other stuff and then it's just, it's just ever changing. So whatever the tool is that you use to track or improve SEO, sort of by its very nature you have to keep using it because the thing underneath it is moving. So lots of things in digital marketing are like this, AdWords, SEO, competitive reports, email marketing, content marketing, social media measurement techniques, A-B testing, like kind of anything in that world is by its very nature. Um, dynamic is an overused word, but it's true, changing over time. And so you kind of need a tool over and over again um, to keep up with it. So that's a natural pattern. Another one is support, which may be a dangerous place to go um, for a self-funded company because that means human time and that can be very expensive. But the fact is that support is something that is again naturally recurring, it's very easy. So for example, we have a premium support package that's $500 a month that gets you some better SLAs and stuff. And um, so for example, a simple version of that is you could say for only $100 a month, you can, have a, you can have a premium support package in which your tickets get priority over the people who are not. And you just make two queues and work them that way. And so those people simply have faster response times, blah, 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 get the front of the line. And it's pretty much free money because you want to do all the tickets anyways. And it just changes the order in which you do it in such a way that people are giving you money. So that's an interesting way to incorporate support in a way that is actually con you know, conducive to a you know, low-touch support kind of a thing like we're talking about. We, you know, we now have this big scaling support organization, so it's more complicated as account management and stuff. But anyway, that's a way to do it um, in a small way. So <clears throat> what I don't like is uh, products that are viral, where that's supposed to be how they grow. And the reason is, number one, they almost never work. Just by the numbers, they almost never work, and so I just don't like it at all because it's, it's, lo it's low risk of success, and that sucks. Another thing is, even if the viral coefficient is okay, it's hard to get going. Like if you only have 100 users, and every month, 1% of them invite a friend. It's like, right, that's one more user, and or zero, because now we're in rounding error, right? Like, it's really hard to get going unless you have this big corpus to start with, right? And so, and that big corpus to start with is often really difficult and expensive. Like you often can't charge yet, and it's hard. So to me, it doesn't fit the model of, um, <clears throat> of the self-funded startup, um, so I don't, I don't like it at all. Uh, the kind of thing I do like is anything that, um, that isn't a real time in its nature, by which I mean it is not important that the user absolutely get something out of you in this instant or else it's over. So um, 
hosting is a bad is a counterexample. So here's one example where WP Engine was not a good fit in this, and and, and rightly so. I mean, imagine how many times we woke, we wake up in the middle of the night to fix something, and that's because when a site is down in the middle of the night, we have to go fix it because it's a real time problem. We can't wait till the morning. Not okay. As opposed to invoicing software, where it could wait till the morning. It's not ideal, but you can. You can send that invoice out in a day. It's okay. It doesn't have to be today. And that's terrific. That's what you want. You don't want to get up in the middle of the night. That was a mistake, believe me. You don't want to do that. So <clears throat> anything that's sort of decision support for a business, so right, analytics and metrics and monitoring, all these kind of things, are almost never real time in their nature. And, and, or they may, the data might be, but the availability doesn't necessarily need to be, which is kind of more to the point. Another example is, again, anything in finance, because they, there's always lots of buffer around when the finance folks have to do their various things, and so you have time. Um, project management is another random, just just another random example. These are obviously far from exhaustive. These are just sort of you know getting your juices flowing. Project management again, like if my if if Trello isn't available for for um, an hour, that does suck, no doubt about it. Like I, I saw several Trello boards when I was walking around, so for sure that's that's something. But you're not going to cancel. You're not going to go. In that case, I'm going to completely switch to a different product. It's just not going to happen because it's okay. Um, anything that's content is obviously something that's easy. And content also is super easy to make highly available anyway. You put it on S3, finished, right? Or something like that. Like content's easy to make always available anyhow. And, and anyway, if it's not available, it's okay. Another market, kind of market I don't like is marketplaces. This is where I have buyers and sellers, and I bring them together so that they have a, a, a marketplace of, of fun. Uh, Etsy is a marketplace. Um, Kickstarter is a marketplace. eBay is sort of the quintessential um, you know, big marketplace play. Amazon, oddly enough, is kind of a marketplace in that they're, they're, you know, Amazon doesn't make any products. OK, now they make a few. But in general, they don't. right? They just get consumers to a website and get products and sell it. That's a marketplace. And <clears throat> the reason I don't like it, again, marketplaces are very difficult to build, almost never work, because you kind of have two businesses. You have the business of uh, getting the sellers to get over here and put your products here and use my method of payment and God knows what else it is. And you have to go do that and pull them over. And you have no buyers yet to do that with. And you need the buyers. You need to convince them and, and advertise them or whatever the hell you do to get them over here. And you don't have sellers yet. So you have this chicken and egg kind of two business Janus sort of thing going on. And it's hard. And the good news is if you're successful, it's very defensible. Um, we were talking about this last night. But supposing Etsy right now open sourced their whole environment. So can you go compete with Etsy? No, because people type Etsy.com. That is actually their asset. The fact that someone types Etsy.com, the fact that someone types eBay, the fact that someone types Kickstarter is, in fact, the valuable asset of the company, not the code behind it. Right? So that's cool. It's great. But again, for a self-funded startup, I feel like um, two companies are, have a much, much lower risk of succeeding than one, uh, you know, two that have to both be successful in a way. And it's just hard, so I don't, I don't like it. A market I do like, going back again, is something that can be done. Um, and I think there's a ton of kinds of things that can be done. But what I mean is you don't want to be in a feature war with another product where, where your success is tied to things like, oh, they have more features than I do, so I have to keep writing. Because by your very nature, you don't have as many developers, and you don't have as many resources in general. Your designers aren't as good, whatever, by its very nature. So why would you compete in a space in which lots of features is a, is, is, is a differentiator? when that's not a kind of a thing that you're going to have as a unique differentiator. 
um, Nico Mack, the guy that made WinZip, made a million dollars a year in the 90s with shareware. And WinZip was done, right? I mean, sure, there was like WinZip 9, and uh, who even knows what it did? Nothing, right? It's, it's WinZip, and most of us stole it anyhow, and he still made a million dollars a year way back when that was actually pretty hard, and you were mailing postcards with checks and stuff for the shareware. Remember that? Beerware and all that? Um, but that's what I mean, a product that, that can be done and fit. Not that you never work on it again. Of course, that's not really the case. But it can be done. And there's a ton of kinds of products like that. I like that. Another thing I like is an aftermarket, by which I mean there's already an established incumbent prod product that has a lot of following. And you can tack onto the end of it. And so some examples right here, SmartBear was like that. So you already have version control, and now you have code review. So we integrated with Perforce and Subversion and CVS, and in fact, um, a dozen different things. Balsamic Mockup started as add-ons to Basecamp and so on. WooThemes, obviously, is, is themes on the platform of WordPress. My current company is based on the fact that WordPress has a huge following, and they need a host somewhere. That's an aftermarket service for WordPress. Alien Skin is a company that's kind of well-known for being around for uh, over a decade, meaning making tons of money, bootstrapped, and they make Photoshop plugins. Cool Photoshop plugins. They don't make Photoshop, they just make cool plugins afterwards. QODBC is a, is a company that's been around since 1984. Want me to say that again? And they're bootstrapped, and all they do is sell this product that takes um, a QuickBooks file and puts an ODBC interface on it so you can make database queries against it. Pretty cool aftermarket tool for QuickBooks. So um, this is what I mean. And the reason I like it so much is it's easy to understand, like, this is the product. This is exactly how it works. These are the pain points. A lot of people with this product have this pain point. I know how to find those customers because they use this particular product, so the keywords are obvious. Many times the vendors are interested in supporting you. I gave a talk at the Perforce, that's version control, the Perforce user conference every year about code review because we were an aftermarket tool on Perforce and we promoted Perforce as well. Um, as a result, just there was no agreement. We didn't change money. We just did because Perforce was good and so our tool worked well with it. And so I got customers all the time by being invited to their user conference um, and to give a talk, which is bizarre, um, because they wanted to support it. So even better are the, are the companies, or, or I would say ecosystems, meaning companies that intentionally go make this aftermarket market. And like Salesforce, you can, there's literally sforce.com where they help you uh, make a product that you can then sell to Salesforce customers. And Heroku does that with their plugin store. And the Apple App Store is really the same thing for the device. If you're an aftermarket app for the device, right? Now, some of these ecosystems are more friendly than others. Like the App Store is well known for you know, not approving the app or maybe competing with you eventually. So that one's a little bit trickier. I mean, not to say that means you shouldn't do it, but it's a, you, know, you have to look at that risk. But then you look at these ecosystems like Salesforce and Heroku, and it's very clear that they are committed to not doing that shit to you. And so like Salesforce, people complain like, they haven't added features in years. That's exactly right, because they want other people to make money adding features, because that's part of their ecosystem, and they know that's part of what makes them strong, and they act that way. And so does Heroku, and that's good. That's the kind of ecosystem that I, I love, because look, it's a marketing channel, a sales channel, a pricing channel. Like There's all kinds of stuff that you sort of get built in when it's like that, and I love built in. And the last thing about market I want to talk about is I think you should be in a big market. And this is typically something that a VC would tell you, right? You want to be in a big market with lots where people are spending billions of dollars, and why does a VC want that? Well, because a VC wants you to be worth a billion dollars, and that's not possible unless people are spending a billion dollars, or maybe you're making up a new market that you think is going to be worth a billion dollars. So that's why they care. We don't care about that at all. But I still think you should be in a big market because 
first of all, there's lots of niches that you can be in. So you've sliced out this little customer segment of, okay, only people from Wichita Falls who invoice to other states with sales tax, and we're going to nail it, and there's 462 of them, and we can find them because it's Wichita Falls, so we can just walk around and find them. And actually, that's a pretty good idea. That's a pretty good place to get started, and then you can get bigger, right? So that's good, except the problem with the small market is that if that little niche doesn't work, there may not be another thing to go do that's of any interesting size. And so your options are limited, and that's bad, because obviously at the front, and even in the middle of the business, you're never sure exactly what's going to work out and what's next and all that kind of stuff. A big market has lots of playground, lots of niches that you could, if this fails, you're here, or if this is successful, you could expand to there, whatever, you have optionality, and optionality is always power. The other thing is your product doesn't have to be the number one best thing ever for anything. Um, how many CRM tools are there? How many project management tools are there? How many timekeeper software are there? How many invoice uh, packages are there? Like hundreds in each category, maybe more. And not everyone's making a bunch of money, but actually a lot of people are making enough money. And that's interesting. In a big market, there's so much space that it's okay if it's not the number one best thing for everything, you can still have a business, and that's good. And not necessarily true in a smaller market. And of course, just the fact that it's big and people are spending billions of dollars means there is a market at all. And like Heaton again said earlier, uh, uh, many, perhaps most companies fail because they're not building something where there is a pain that people will pay for, that you can get to, all this other stuff. But in a huge market, there is a pain and people are spending money and you probably can get to that, right? It validates that off the bat and that's a huge thing. And it's easy to find those customers. And if you change your mind, as I did with WP Engine, and decided to change it from a cash machine to, screw it, I want to swing for the fences, if, then in a big market, you still have that option. That's all. Option's good. So the third thing I want to get through is um, how do you acquire customers, right? So we talked about charge a lot of money and how, and kinds of markets I like and don't like, and now what about getting customers? So probably the most controversial thing I will, t I will state is that I do not like social media in any form for getting customers. I don't think it works very well. I think it's a lot of time. I think people don't acknowledge how much time and, and cost it actually is. And I don't think it, it, it often does not result in a repeatable business where it's a cash machine and every month it does it and every month you can acquire customers. I want a business where I can put in a dollar and know I'll make $4 this year or maybe even now because I have annual prepay, right? Um, that's what I want. And, I, and social media does not give that to me. It's ever-changing. It's hard to have a voice. It's hard to do stuff. I have a blog with 40,000 readers. And when I launched WP Engine, a, a blogging platform, I was sure I'd get maybe 30, 50 new customers just out of people going, oh, Jason's doing that. I'm going to switch to that and see what it is. Right? That's, maybe that's egotistical. Well, it definitely is egotistical. But that's what I wanted to do. So I did. And I got two signups, this many out of tens of thousands of readers. And actually, I asked Heaton, I'm like, Heaton, you're really hot. you're internet famous, and you launch these little companies and, and seed them with your stuff. What the hell am I doing wrong? Heaton's, and Heaton just goes, no, it's always like that. It doesn't work. Move on. <laughs> just like that. Like, great. It does, it, it, you know, so of course, you can say, well, what about Buffer? Those guys are really good at social media. Yes, yes, yes. You know, of course, it can be successful, especially if you're really good at it and spend tons of time on it, as they do. Yes, of course, but in general, I don't like that. I want, I want to know I spend money and make money. It's what I want. And so since that's the model I like, then it's, in, it's very important that you know how much you're going you're gonna to pay per click. That could be AdWords or anything else, but one way or another, you're paying for a visit to the website. That's how most online marketing stuff can be boiled down to one way or another. So it's a good question, how much should I pay per click? 
Um, so this is my answer, which is sort of needs justification. My answer is that you can you take how much average revenue you get per customer, divide by 25, and that's what you can pay per click. So if you average $50 a month in revenue, you pay $2 a click. Now obviously there's like a ton of assumptions and shit going on in here, right? Like this is not, what is this? So however, I didn't want to spend more time here going through uh, the, the math and stuff. And besides, you might want to tweak my assumptions and my numbers to come up with your own sort of better formula for you. So I put up a blog post, which I hope is there. Maybe someone can check and make sure it really went up because I didn't, oh it is? Great. Um, and it has the whole derivation of this and blah, blah. So I'll just move on and let you uh, look at that if you care. Um, but the, the point is, you do, obviously this needs to be a data-driven thing. What's my conversion rate? How much, you know, what's the quality of the traffic segment by, uh, by market? Like, there's all kind of landing page optimization. Like, there's a million empirical data points you would actually do to compute this. But of course, you don't have any of those data points. And even if you have a couple hundred customers, you don't have enough data for that to be statistically significant anyway. So you still need a rule of thumb. And so that, there it is. So now the bad news. So let's say all of this works. You create this little company, and you, do, you have no employees or just a few employees you actually like working with. And it's chunking out 30, 40K a month in profit, maybe. That'd be nice. And everything's going well. What happens next? It keeps growing. That's what it does. That's what companies that are successful do. They don't stop. And so if it keeps growing and you don't hire people to work on support, then you're going to give bad customer support. Is that OK? Is that all right for you? Is that the kind of company you wanted to build that you enjoy working on? And do you hire more people? And if you do, what does that mean in terms of your job? And you used to just worry about look after marketing or just look after the code. But now you're managing people. Now it becomes a thing that wasn't the thing that you wanted it to become that you didn't set out for. And so this is, this is kind of an issue. And so, so what some people do, there's various ways kind of out of this. You know, you can, you can just sell the company before it's too big. Who, who's the guy that has the, the, um, that, that book about selling your company? Where is, where is he? Selling your company online? Yeah, websites. There he is. So you can go talk to that guy about selling your, your website online, and he'll help you because he has a book about it. So hooray. But um, it's hard, obviously, to sell. That's, it's, it's easier said than done, and you usually don't get that much money for it. Sometimes you sell it, if you have a partner, if you have an employee, sometimes you can sell it to them. A nice trick there is a lot of times people don't have like a bunch of cash to give you, and so you do some kind of earn out. Like you're going to get five or 10 grand a month or a percentage of revenue um, for three years, and in that way the company can afford to pay you off while you go off. And that's not such a bad thing, but of course you also don't have your company anymore. Um, this, is how, um, this is what happened to my second company, IT Watchdogs. We were, um, uh, I, I guess I, I'm probably running low on time, right, Rob? How am I doing on time? Okay. So, um, so we, we, had, we, had, we had built this amazing device for a customer of ours um, on a contract basis. Um, and it was wildly successful to them. They were immediately making millions of dollars more money per year with this thing that was embedded in their stuff. And I remember we were sitting there in, a, in, in, in their conference room in Lincoln, Nebraska, and they, and they said, hey, what's stopping you from building the same product and selling it to the other 100 power strip manufacturers on Earth? And we thought, we said, I, nothing, I guess. We don't have an exclusive. So yeah, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> And so four months later, they bought the company. <laughs> That's it. Um, so it, it happens, of course. But again, it's hard to, it's hard to like, make that happen or plan for that. 
common thing people say is raise prices. I mean, shoot, if you don't want more customers, then make each of the customers pay more. This is good, and that's true. But there, there, you know, it does also change um, the, the nature of the business. So this conference is a good example. This year was more expensive than last year, and so some people that were a little more of a entrepreneur and not really, you know, not really that serious, just sort of snooping around, it, you charge more, and, and some of them will drop off. And that was something that was useful for the conference. But if this conference were ten grand, like almost no one could, uh, no one, almost no one here could or should show up for that kind of dough. And who would? I don't know, but it would be a different conference, whatever that is, It'd be different. So just raising prices also changes the clientele. And that may or may not be, again, OK for what you want to do. Um, and again, you could decide, well, screw this bootstrapping thing. I'm going to, uh, I'll go ahead and raise money. And that's fine. And that's what we did with WP Engine. And so that's cool. If you decide you want to change your journey completely, that's fine. But uh, if you knew this ahead of time, then all this bootstrapping was actually a bad idea. In other words, if you wanted to go do, you know, if that was your goal in the first place, then you should have just been on that path and optimizing yourself and your time and going to market and all that in the first place and not sort of gone too slowly at first and then finally decide to accelerate. So it's a sub-optimization anyway, um, and you, sh you should have kind of known that ahead of time, maybe. So this is, but this is, this, is, this is kind of bad. Like, so what is the answer here? I mean, I want this little company, and then if I am successful, then it won't be that thing. It's just like this weird catch-22. And there isn't, a great, there isn't a great answer, unfortunately. This is one of those dilemmas. You know how you know, people sell their company, and then, you know, oh, boo-hoo, money doesn't make you happy. And oh, boo-hoo, you don't know what to do next. Oh, boo-hoo, like, you made $10 million, shut up, right? But actually, it's very real. And actually, you know, people's happiness and fulfillment is very real. And this is, this is going to happen in some form or fashion to you if you're successful. And then it won't feel like, uh, you know, oh, that's a high-class problem. Like, yes, and it's your problem. And so what are you going to do? It's hard. And so, but as opposed to what? Like working at IBM or not doing this? No, it's in our DNA. We have to do this. Um, so the only thing I can tell you to combat it is this. Um, this guy, Thales, was a, a Greek businessman, but then he turned philosopher, um, which I suppose that's kind of what people who are in tech now do, right? Like, they get successful in business, and then they get blogs, and right? Same thing. Anyway, so Thales was asked, famously, um, what is the hardest thing? And he said, to know thyself. Hardest thing. To me, that is the sort of answer to this dilemma of what is it that I want from this? What am I trying to build with this company? I know I'm trying to make money, yeah. I know I don't want a day job, right on. But what, do, what am I trying to do for me? What's going to be fulfilling for me? Um, and even that is going to change over time, unfortunately, which means you have to keep figuring that out. And it's the hardest thing. Oops, I thought building the company was the hardest thing. Nope, it's this that's the hardest thing. And so that's, again, a very difficult message because uh, there's not much of an answer in that other than, yeah, it's really hard. I don't know. Um, other than maybe talking about it, and especially talking about it with folks who have trod that path before and maybe doing almost therapy <laughs> with them to do that, which I'm happy to do. I know uh, lots, of, lots, of other, lots of other people are uh, very happy to do that sort of thing. It's a nice conversation to have. Um, the other thing he was asked in that same interview was, what is the easiest thing? And he says, to give advice, <laughs> which is what I've been doing for an hour. <laughs> So I'm doing the easiest thing by telling you to do the hardest thing. Great. Easy for me to say, because then I can just wrap and, and leave, and it's up to you to do all the hard stuff. And so people ask, what's my formula for success, which is a stupid question. But if there is an answer, then I've just given it to you as best I can in this past hour, which is that you need to have predictable acquisition of customers, which give you recurring revenue, 
Now you're using an annual prepay to solve all your cash flow problems with. Any market that's conducive to the kind of company that you're building and the constraints and advantages that you have, like being a boutique but not, not having a, a million hours a week. And that's how you create a cash machine. And I hope everyone here does exactly that. And thanks for your time. That one never disappoints, and I feel like it's going to be pretty, pretty timeless. It has been already, you know, given that it's it's seven years later as we're publishing this. So thanks again for joining us this week. There'll be another episode this week that is our MicroConf on-air live stream. Check that out if you're interested. Otherwise, I'll see you again in seven days with the next talk out of our top five MicroConf talks of all time. Talk to you then. <laughs>